Well, uh, I think I might have mentioned this the last time I was with you, and that is that I, I do not take for granted the privilege um, of being with you and of our pastors allowing me to address their people. Um, and, and here we have both of them really absent, so I'm feeling very trusted right now, which is kind of a good feeling. I like it. Um, but, uh, but as long as we stand behind God's Word, right, then, then maybe we'll trust Him. And we, as his weak servants, will be used however he chooses. And we'll just go ahead and humble ourselves in that place, both to speak and to hear. And maybe we can enter in in a fully um, vulnerable, surrendered kind of a way. And we'll actually leave this place different than when we came in to this room today. That's, that's my real desire. And I'm going to pray for you that way in just a second. But I wanted to just say... Um, that, that there's a lot going on in our district. And for those of you that haven't met me or don't even understand, and I, as, as I travel, I recognize that many people in our churches don't even know that they're a part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, for one thing. And you are, as a congregation. Um, and that group is about uh, 1,500 churches in the United States. We have ministries in, I think, 80-some countries around the world. Um, we have, in the United States, our... our, our uh, the country is divided up into 17 districts, and so I'm one of 17 guys like me who are superintending, I guess, shepherding um, uh, people. We met Zachary right here, right? And Judy described me as your pastor's pastor. And that's really what I want to be and what I see as my primary role, and that is to be the safest set of ears that a pastor could ever need. And you know how valuable that is to you in relationships, and then who does the pastor go to? And I'm hoping that I can be that. Another thing that I want to do, though, as I, as I execute our ministry among our 50 churches here in Northern California, Northern Nevada, would be to kind of light a fire under all of you. And I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the visiting guy, right? And so I have a lot of luxury and a lot of leeway. I mean, especially today, I'm really hitting and running, all right? Because I had this other thing in Sacramento, but but the truth is, is, that, is that when I leave, you all get to talk behind my back, and you can decide to do whatever you want with whatever I say today. And I hope you'll leave whatever was mine, but you'll take hold of and really grapple with whatever was God's. And you won't let it go, and then it might challenge you, and it might actually change the way you're thinking, because really God has laid on my heart to kindle within all of us in our churches, our pastors in our churches, that we might recognize that He leaves us on this planet for a very unique reason, the worship that we enjoyed today, the way that you guys have centered us in on who Jesus is and on the the greatness of our God, um, is going to be better someday. This is only a taste of what it will one day be because of all that Jesus has done for us and because we have placed our faith in Him and have been the recipients of so great a grace, right? And so so what is it that, that keeps Him from just skipping to the end? You know, why not just, I mean, who wants to skip to the end? Let's just go, right? So there's something going on here and now, and I'm convicted deeply that it's about him uh, engaging each and every one of us with someone out there who as yet are perishing without Christ. And that somehow he wants to use you and he wants to use me as a link to that person because he loves them desperately and with, the, with all of his life and death and resurrection, right? And so that's, that's really what we're going to talk about today as we take a look uh, in the Gospels today together. And so that we might be ready for that, let's bow our heads one more time. You are a praying people, and I appreciate that. 
Let's do it again. Father, we're here because of you. We wouldn't be here otherwise. Um, in fact, what we're doing is foolish to most. It, it struck me, Lord, as we sang of you this morning, um, that we have made a decision to worship the one true and living God and him only. And that this was something that you worked within us, for we would not have followed after you on our own. Our flesh tears us away from you at every moment. But Lord, you have drawn us here into this place, and now I pray that we would really give ourselves to you in openness, and that, and that you would speak to each heart in that individual way that you do. Because you know what's on the heart of each person here, and you will accomplish what concerns them. Father, you are intimately acquainted with all of their ways, each one of us. And because that's true, Lord, you can meet each one of us with your living word, Jesus, as we examine your written word that speaks of him. And so we offer ourselves to you now, and we give you thanks. And with anticipation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, it's not that complicated. If you remember anything from this day, remember I started that way. It's not that complicated. We make a mess out of everything, don't we? As human beings, we can take anything and turn it into a crazy complicated thing that needs like science to figure it out, right? But it's just not that complicated. And in fact, if I've introduced that enough, maybe you can say it after me on a count of three. Ready? One, two, three. It's not that complicated. Okay. So we'll come back to that several times today. Um, I want to I, I give some credit where credit's due. There's a book that I would encourage you to read. It's called A Meal with Jesus. It's written by a man named Tim Chester. And, and basically what he's saying in here is, in fact, he does. I'm quoting him in the introduction. It's just not that complicated. It's funny what we do, and especially those of us that are in the kind of professional industry of the church, and in the westernized church, and in the American 21st century evangelical church, we've turned this whole thing into science, a whole lot more science, and not quite as much spirit. And that's a frightening thing to me. I'm not sure that's a great trend. And so I'm sort of like John the Baptist who we read about, a voice crying in the wilderness and saying, wait a minute, folks, let's come back a little bit. Let's simplify this a little bit because it's just, it's just not that complicated. But the big idea in this book, A Meal with Jesus, is that, is that he pointedly shares how Jesus' life and relationships kind of revolved around tables. If you were to examine Jesus' life, you will see that again and again and again and again, he was eating and drinking with people, all kinds of people. At the beginning, people without faith in him, obviously, because he was the beginning of everything that we now call Christianity or the church, and none of that existed in labeled form back then, right? We forget that, but right? Nothing existed back then of following Christ. And so that's what his atmosphere was, and he ate and he drank, and it was something very normal and very common and very simple and very accessible, yet very powerful. Otherwise, he would not have spent so much time engaging with people in that context. So, there's a phrase in Scripture that occurs three times. The Son of Man came, fill in the blank. Three different times. The Son of Man came. Some of you will know that that's one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. The Son of Man. He called himself the Son of Man. And he would quote himself and speak of himself in the third person addressing himself as the son of man so i want to look at those three so first of all i want you to open with me to the book of mark we're going to come back to luke where we read but first of all start with me in the book of mark open there to mark chapter 10 and i want you to see the first occurrence 
of this, uh, this phrase, the Son of Man came, and we'll see how he fills in the blank and what maybe it means for us today. The Son of Man came. So we're at Mark 10. The context of this passage, really this first occurrence of the Son of Man came, is that of human pride, um, grasping for position and esteem, the desire that is in all of us to be respected, honored, to have authority, to have importance, right? To have a place, maybe even to be served. Maybe, maybe we all have that in us somewhere in our flesh a little bit, right? So James and John thought Jesus ought to grant them the right to sit on his right hand and his left hand, and they even had the gumption to say it out loud in front of everybody, which is a crazy scene in my mind. I just don't even understand how that could work and everybody still be friends afterwards. But there it was, right? And, uh, and so they, they believed he was going to take an earthly kingship with an earthly throne with a governing power, and they wanted to be right there in the thick of it. And of course, Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking for, didn't he? And then he began to speak of fascinating things concerning what it meant to hold a position of connectedness to Jesus like that, because he came to suffer more than any other one thing, didn't he? And so he told them in Mark 10 and verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now this one of Jesus' clear mission statements will occur again and again in Scripture. His overall purpose for living is given here. The first phrase specifies an attitude. The first phrase of this, that is the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Okay, that, that first phrase really speaks of a posture or an attitude, a, a servitude, a servanthood, right? It's the idea that his coming was not all about him, even though he is the Son of God. And then he invites us into the same kind of way of life. Now, the second phrase, however, that is that he came to give his life a ransom for many, the second phrase declares Jesus' true purpose, for his incarnation, for taking on human flesh. It was to give. And it was to give himself. It was to give his very life, his body and his blood. No small thing for no small purpose with no small result. He came to give his very life and he knew that and that in the giving of his life, he would ransom back from death all who would trust him for that gift. It's a beautiful thing. And we sit here and rejoice in it today. So he came with a posture of servanthood, selflessness, intention towards suffering. But I want you to watch it now. Even that servanthood was not an end in itself. But it was being carried out for a reason, for a purpose, for a greater purpose. A larger reason. That is, he would suffer in fulfillment of prophecy. Yes. Prophecy that would reveal him as the Messiah that was spoken of by the prophets and in, in the history books, right? that they all looked forward to, that he would be the suffering servant. He would suffer the wrath of a holy God who must punish sin, but his suffering was simply the avenue upon which he would travel in order to fulfill his destiny. How he would accomplish his purpose for coming. That he would be embodied the ransom, historically, cosmically, in every theological and salvific way. And all the depth of everything that we have come to understand that we need so desperately for all of time and for all people. This is our Jesus. He is the Christ. His life in payment for my life. That is His purpose. 
So in Mark 10, 45, we have a statement that is mostly about the purpose, even though there's a little bit about the manner in which he carried out his purpose. Now, the second verse is in Luke chapter 19. Turn with me there. And the second one that I want to show to you before we hone in on Luke 7 is in Luke 19. And this verse starts out again, the Son of Man came, and it's again mainly a statement of purpose. So in Luke chapter 19, you'll see in verse 10, these words, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Great purpose statement. But again, notice that he came to be intentional about people, right? Lost people, of whom all of us were in company, weren't we? So the first descriptive word in this statement, again, reveals Jesus' way. He came seeking. He came seeking people. He came chasing people. He came for people with his eye toward people. He came toward people that are lost. Later in Luke 15, you're probably aware, Jesus stops to tell three stories, or Luke compiles three stories for us that Jesus told of lost things, doesn't he? A a sheep and a coin and, and and a couple of sons of a loving father who were who were lost and and that that we could celebrate greatly when those things are found so his life and his purpose is about seeking things that are lost as a description of a manner of living right one of the three stories is about a good shepherd who leaves everything to seek and to find his lost sheep now in seeking this lost sheep it's kind of a fascinating context if you've ever thought about this jesus tells the story that reveals his priority of lost things because one thing that we would all recognize almost immediately is this is not a clinic in good shepherding. It says right there in, in the story that Jesus told, he leaves the 99 in open pasture. What shepherd does that? There isn't a substitute shepherd there to watch over him. He doesn't first put him in a pen so they're safe because what do sheep do? They scatter. What do sheep do? They get attacked by wolves, right? When they're left unattended. And so Jesus obviously is not giving a clinic on shepherding. This is not a seminar on being a better shepherd and, you know, what? No, he's saying the 99, they're good to go. There's a lost one. And I want that one. See, it's the heart of Jesus. That's really the point in, in telling these kinds of stories. So again, in the last half of the statement, we have that part of what Jesus came to do that we simply cannot ever do. The first part, seeking people, well, that, that we can do. That's a manner, that's a posturing of ourselves toward relationships with people, right? But the last part of it, we can't do. Save the lost? Anybody here ever saved a soul in your entire life? Anybody think they're capable of saving a soul? That is above our pay grade, isn't it? Only Jesus can save. And so here we have this thing that Jesus purpose for life is made clear well described in this word save he came to save again if if jesus purpose is to save the lost then that's good enough for me i think maybe that's why he's leaving me on the planet that's why he's leaving you on the planet it's not about our position or our spiritual gift or our personality or any of those kinds of things it really is about his purpose and his intention with those that he makes his own His purpose for His incarnation, taking on human flesh, being grace and truth, dwelling among us, is to save. And so then, it isn't complicated, right? That is my purpose for remaining in human flesh as well. I long to be like Jesus, right? The Father's intention is to make me more and more like Jesus. And and here is the very core of what it means to be like Jesus. It is to seek the lost. It is to save 
the lost. Now, hold that there and turn back with me to Luke chapter 7, and we'll remain here for the rest of our time together. In this third time that this phrase, the Son of Man, occurs, the Son of Man came, I should say, occurs. It's a statement of lifestyle. We like to call it total community immersion. That's what I'm going to introduce you to you. The idea of, of being totally immersed in our community for the sake of that lost sheep. Right? And so it's a, it's a statement of lifestyle. Now Chester in his book calls it a method of Jesus. And, and this is one of, those, one of those words that we've picked out in the science of, of church planting and church growth and church reproduction and church multiplication and all of that that we do in, in my profession, you know, in the church industry. All of that just sounds wrong, doesn't it? It just is like, And I love to put it that way, just to make it sound really wrong out loud, right? So there's something, remember, it's not that complicated, okay? So that, that's, that's a part of what I want to get back to all this. It, it just sounds, to call it a method then is what I'm saying is that it's, it makes it sound far too strategic, like Jesus went to a church planting seminar and, and latched on to some principles and now he's carrying them out. Okay, that's not what happened, all right? We tend to think that maybe that's what we should do somehow, even though Jesus didn't. So too scientific, right? I'd rather call it a lifestyle, therefore, or, or just a way of living. It is a heart thing, really. It's a way that a purpose, uh, the, excuse me, a way that a person leans, right? Do we lean away from people or in the carrying on of our normal life, do we lean in to people? That's really kind of all it is. So it's not that complicated, is it? Told you that. It really isn't. All of us can do that, as a matter of fact. Life with people where they are living or life in, in a more intentional solitude, which, which will it be? And some of us are geared, our personality, our preferences geared toward solitude. In fact, whenever I get out here toward the mountains and the smaller nooks and crannies of the postcard towns of my district, I recognize people came here for a reason, right? Lots of people out here are trying to get away from something for different kinds of reasons. So the little bit of a fire that I would light under you today, if I could say it and hit you and then run, would be I don't think we have the option to lean away from people. If we are His and want to be Christ-like, we will lean toward, in toward people who need Him, people who are lost, people who are perishing. So here we are at Luke chapter 7. And I want to skip because we've had it read for us already to verse 33 and read that for you again. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. Jesus speaking here to the Pharisees, the scribes, the people that are levying criticism against Christ and anybody that has a connection to him. And in verse 34, Jesus goes on, he says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, in contrast to John the Baptist, right? And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners love it i mean if if people are critical in their spirit they will find something to complain about and it might be the exact opposite of what they thought they was and what thought they supported but now they can't so here we are again let me be clear jesus did the complicated part don't forget this now the son of man gave his life as a ransom for many he did it it's done the son of man came to save the lost that's complicated that, that, that actually saving a soul, we cannot do it. It's out of our power, out of our control. We cannot be creative enough, intelligent enough, or persuasive enough to save a soul. Some of us think that that's been our job. 
and we've felt inadequate and then like a failure. And I want to release you from that today. We cannot save a soul. That's the complicated part. So now we can all breathe a collective sigh of relief. Ready? Oh, I don't have to save a soul. Sweet! I get to just be me. Having a story of a genuine encounter with the grace of God through Christ. And I have a real story. It's mine. It's not like anyone else's. I get to be me. He designed it that way. Because if I had put a little inkling in your head, I'd say, you fit someone. Who is that? Still out there. Go searching for that person, would you? Who is it? You're still here. I think for that reason, maybe. What do I know? But I think maybe. So actually saving souls involves the heart of a person, right? And we cannot actually reach the heart. We can't massage it just so and, and move it toward transformation, though we, <laughs> we sometimes try to change one another, right? We, we try to do that. We'd like to, but it's pretty complicated stuff. When we try, we mess things up, whether it's you know husbands and wives attempting to change one another or even us trying to change our kids as parents. We're trying to shape them, control them, mold them, make sure that they're in the right places, never in the wrong places, and we just, you know... It, uh, and it's you know everybody's all frustrated right it's, n- it's not fun for anyone the person trying to change somebody or the person trying to be changed it isn't any fun let's leave it to god so jesus has already done this thing that we're in this in this process of doing a very complicated work he saves he ransoms he's and, and it's finished the work needing to be accomplished was on the cross so his broken body which we will share his shed blood which we will drink Okay, in remembrance of him, the, the, the declaration that he made that he will not eat and drink again until that time when we will do it together in eternity causes us to anticipate that we're going to be together with him again one day when all is finished. But then he ascended. See, he finished. He, he rose from the dead and defeated death. Then he ascended and took his place at the right hand of the throne of God. And when he sat down, not only did he say at the cross, it's finished. But he declared it in a physical kind of way. The work is done. I'm sitting now. Amen? And so we go in that kind of confidence and that kind of strength that the work has been accomplished by our Christ. And now we get to do the uncomplicated part. And he calls us into these relationships with people while we cooperate with Jesus' purpose for living. And here's how we can do this, declaring Jesus' purpose. And now let's us be careful not to make the mistakes that many of us humans tend to make. And that is that we'll encode something into law that we observe in Jesus' life. And that's a little bit of a caution I'd give you about Tim Chester's book. He says he came eating and drinking, and so now let's just all do eating and drinking. But the truth is is that Jesus did a lot of other things too, didn't he? He healed a bunch of people. He, uh, he, he preached a bunch of sermons. He did it out on hillsides. He visited the temple. He read the scriptures. And he sat down to teach the people there. He, he let some people go and didn't work the miracle when it seemed like a miracle was demanded in the moment, didn't he? A lot, he did a lot of mysterious things and he didn't do a lot of things that left me feeling a little mystified. So Jesus did a lot of different kinds of things, but one of the things that was very common that he did repeatedly and constantly 
was to eat and to drink and to be there with people. So there's an invitation here to one uncomplicated way that seems to me to be accessible to all personality types in the room, to all spiritual gift mixes, to all economic conditions, to everybody's schedule, to any other formerly perceived limitation that we thought maybe we had in regard to a lifestyle that actually furthers the gospel toward another person who needs it so desperately. And I want to offer you an entirely accessible way of living like Jesus that will open avenues of love and grace in relationship with the people that God loves, with the people that God brings across your path in normal life. And so I will remind you, I hope it's sounding like it, it's not that complicated. It's kind of sounding like that, isn't it? So Luke 7, in verse 34, as we read, says that the Son of Man was accused by the most religiously pure and holy of eating too much, he was a glutton, of drinking too much, he was a drunkard, and of being friends with the wrong people, right? Tax collectors and sinners, and you're not supposed to befriend those people. And they condemned him for it. I find that fascinating. So how many of you eat? And how many of you drink? And how many of you make intentional connections with what might be called the wrong people? See, we've been raised awesome. Thank you. And I was going to like leave that one alone. So cool. That's beautiful. I love it. Which is a total point of my whole sermon, right? So you guys are right with me. It's, it's a beautiful thing. But, but here's the thing. We've been raised for quite a few generations in a row right now to actually think that good Christians are something like Pharisees that separate themselves from all the bad and evil stuff in the world, right? And so it, it, we've developed a reputation for it. And, and as parents, sometimes we get really concerned about our kids playing with the wrong kids and those influences that might happen or the danger that's out there, some of those kinds of things. And, 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 and so there's been a little bit of a culture shift within us in these days in American life. And that is that perhaps if, if we come apart from, then maybe we'll be even better Christians and become more mature in our faith, and I, I just want to give us a, a little bit of a word of caution here. Jesus was accused of something, and that was hanging out with the wrong people. Now, as I say that, I also want to say I don't know all of you in this room, right? And so there could be somebody in this room who right now is searching, wondering, questioning, asking. Maybe you've been around the church, even this church, for quite a while, and maybe most people even think that you've got this genuine faith in your heart, but you know in your heart of hearts that you're still really questioning a lot of this. Like, really? God? Jesus? Raised from the grave? Forgive my sins? What? And you're not sure. And then some of you maybe weren't raised in the church, and you're here, and you're seeking, and you're asking. Let me first of all say, wow, you are in the right place. This is a great place to be searching and seeking and asking those kinds of questions. Way to go. And so when I call those that have not yet placed their faith and surrender in Jesus, when I call them the wrong people, I hope you understand what I mean. Because in a great big way, you, if you are one who has yet to surrender your complete trust in Jesus, you are exactly the right person, in my opinion. You're the one I most cherish. Don't tell anybody this, but I kind of love hanging out with people that don't know Jesus yet. Sometimes a little more than hanging out with people that do know Jesus already. Ugh. Did I just say that? So just so you know that, I, I just hope that you see this as another step in your journey toward getting answers to those questions and, and figuring out what it is that Jesus is speaking to you in your heart, that sort of thing. But, but with all of that in mind, this very real human experience, this, what I want you to kind of do is hear what Jesus is saying, eating, 
drinking with people who don't have faith in him yet. Okay, with, with that, kind of stand over the top of that and take a look at it. It's just a really common scene, right? It's mealtime. It, it's hanging out and grabbing something. It's, it's coffee. It's a beer. It's a this or it's a that, okay? And, and all of that could be controversial in some of our minds and struggle with certain lifestyle issues and those kinds of things. I get that. But this is a very commonplace thing. I want to take the mythology out of it. Very common. People enjoying each other being around a table. That's really it. See it as that. It's that simple. So with all of that in mind, then, I want you to consider entering into an intentional way of living. That is, you have a table. You go to tables. If we were just a tad more intentional about having people there that don't know Jesus yet, or going to the tables of people who don't know Jesus yet, then that's really entering in to Christ-likeness. Have you been accused of eating too much, of drinking too much, or of hanging out with the wrong people? You know, maybe the best sign of our growing discipleship is actual Christ-likeness. And maybe we're never more like Christ than when we're eating and drinking and hanging out with the wrong people. By the way, it turns out it's really fun. Can you imagine? Because we all enjoy this. And most of us enjoy it three times a day and maybe four times a day. And, you know, there is that fourth meal thing, right? And then, you know, maybe we enjoy it too much sometimes, don't we? An American way of life. So I guess what I'm saying is, first of all, enjoy the regularity of it. It's simple. It's repeatable. It's enjoyable. Everyone does this. And they do it repeatedly. It's just, it's regular. It's just regular. It's not special. We're talking about friendship here. And I, and I guess in our current Christian culture, it's, it's a risk that we need to be willing to take, and that is the risk of being accused. So that's the second thing I would say. Yeah, enjoy the regularity of it, but risk the accusation of it. And maybe you will find in your life's trajectory that day that you get accused of spending too much time in the wrong places with the wrong people, you will have reached a level of your Christian discipleship that makes you just like Jesus Grapple with that, would you? Would you be willing to just grapple with it, think about it, pray over it, contemplate who those people might be in your life and on your journey and where you were? See, John the Baptist was accused for what could be called eccentric religious behavior, right? And then Jesus, of course, was accused for exceptionally worldly behavior. Fascinating. So living faithfully to do our part in fulfilling the Great Commission is is just not that complicated. We've made it out to be far more complicated than it was ever meant to be, I'm convinced. And so I just want to—I want you to walk into your week with three things in mind, okay? One, Jesus' purpose for living is good enough for me. Two, eat, drink, and be friends with people. God, this feels like the most simple sermon I've ever preached in my life. Three, repeat <laughs> there's a book called christianity rediscovered that that outlines a very fascinating journey of a certain man it's it's unique in that it's a book written by a roman catholic priest who when he went into the priesthood this is back in the like late 60s early 70s in africa he discovered something on the mission field and that was institutional christianity Right? It's everywhere where Christians have ever gone. We set up institutions. And his, his thought was, as he, as he observed this, that 
There is a simple gospel message of grace that needs to be conveyed to this tribe that I'm with, the Maasai tribe that I'm with right now. And, and the institution is kind of standing in the way. And we're trying to Americanize people, and we're trying to Westernize people, and we're trying to, and it's getting lost in the works. And I just want to sit down and eat and drink and talk to people about Jesus and this good news that is the gospel. And so he writes a letter back to his authorities, and you know there's a whole lot of levels of authority within the Roman Catholic institution, right? And, and so he said, this is what I'm going to do, and I don't know if it's okay with you, but it's, I, God help me, it's all I can do, right? And so, so he sets off on it, and then he tells the story in this book. I, I, I set in on, a, on one part of his journey, and I want to read it for you right now. I was sitting talking with a Maasai elder about the agony of belief and unbelief. He pointed out that the word that I had used to convey faith was not very satisfactory in their language. It meant literally to agree to. He said to believe, this is the Maasai elder now, to believe like that was similar to a white hunter shooting an animal with his gun from a great distance. Only his eyes and his fingers took part in the act. He said, for a man really to believe is like a lion going after his prey. His nose and eyes and ears pick up the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power of his body is involved in the terrible death leap and single blow to the neck with the front paw, the blow that actually kills. And as the animal goes down, the lion envelops it in its arms, pulls it to himself and makes it part of himself. This is the way a lion kills. This is the way a man believes. This is what faith is. I looked at the elder in silence and amazement, but he wasn't finished. We did not search you out, Padre, he said to me. We did not even want you to come to us. You searched us out. You followed us away from your house, into the bush, into the plains, into the steeps where our cattle are, into the hills where we take our cattle for water, into our villages, into our homes. You told us of the high God, how we must search for him, even leave our land and our people to find him. But we have not done this. We have not left our land. We have not searched for him. He has searched for us. He has searched us out and found us. All the time we think we are the lion. In the end, the lion is God. You see, the lion is God, and he's seeking, searching, living, and saving that which is lost. And he invites us into that process so that now we too are now the lions in residence who do not roar loudly nor become violent against our prey, but we make them so much totality a part of our life that there is almost a lack of resistance anymore as the lion with his prey in a context of just being friends with people because we ourselves possess the living word and hope of God in Jesus Christ. It just might be as easy as eat, drink, and repeat. It's not that complicated. Bow your heads with me, would you? Oh, our Father, 
for some reason I feel the need uh, to ask for forgiveness for making things so complicated, for taking myself far too seriously. And maybe I, in doing that, have not taken you seriously enough. Forgive me for that. Father God, you sent your Son, your only Son, to deliver us, to be our substitution, to pay the highest of all payments, and suffer a penalty he did not deserve, the one that I did deserve. And in so doing, you've offered us grace, unearned, undeserved, a beautiful gift. A marvelous and wonderful sacrifice made for my benefit at your loss. And even as we celebrate such with the, the bread and the, and the cup, oh Lord, we give you thanks that not only have you saved us, but you have left us here with a purpose, with meaning for our next step, our next breath. The next day we drag our sorry selves out of bed one more time because there's a reason And I pray, Father, that we would see it more simply than we ever have, more accessible than we ever have, more doable, because we see it simply as eating and drinking with people, being there with the people that are on our pathway already. And we will give you thanks and praise for giving the fruit when you choose to save. We will rejoice with heaven when the lost is found. So we give you thanks. We give you praise and we give you ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with us? Mm -hmm.